Welcome to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center, a nonprofit organization that exists to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson, United States Supreme Court Justice and the Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. This podcast explores and examines contemporary and historic issues of equality, fairness, and justice with a Jacksonian lens through in-depth conversations with experts, academics, innovators, and those doing boots on the ground work. I am your host, Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Hello, and thank you for joining us for this webinar, The Path and Obstacles to a Special Tribunal for Ukraine. My name is Kristen McMahon, and I have the pleasure of serving as the president of the Robert H. Jackson Center in Jamestown, New York. The Jackson Center, which promotes and advances the legacy of Robert H. Jackson, Supreme Court Justice, and Chief U.S. Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg, envisions a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. Our programming theme for 2022 is Democracy on Trial, and we're exploring the challenges to, pressures on, and opportunities for democracy and democratic institutions around the world. Earlier this week, we commemorated Justice Jackson's closing statement at the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. I would like to, however, to take us back to some language in his opening statement delivered in November of 1945. In the second paragraph of his opening statement, Justice Jackson wrote, the common sense of mankind demands that law shall not stop with the punishment of petty crimes by little people. It must also reach men who possess themselves of great power and make deliberate and concerted use of it to set in motion evils which leave no home in the world untouched. In his often quoted first paragraph, Jackson wrote, the wrongs which we seek to condemn and punish have been so calculated, so malignant, and so devastating that civilization cannot tolerate their being ignored because it cannot survive their being repeated. Crimes of aggression, crimes against peace or war crimes, genocide, and crimes against humanity certainly have been repeated since the IMT at Nuremberg. And numerous times, the international community has stepped up to pursue justice for the victims of these crimes. Russia's invasion of Ukraine in late February 2022 captured the attention of the world beyond the community of those who pursue international humanitarian justice. The way international criminal law is structured and Russia's position in international bodies creates challenges, but we have real world models for how this has been done in the past and can be done now. And the rekindled global focus brings a renewed opportunity, which we will explore today with the help of our assembled experts. We are pleased to have a number of co-sponsors for today's webinar, and we extend our thanks to the Global Accountability Network, who established their Ukraine task force the day after Russia's invasion, calling on the United Nations to authorize the Secretary General to establish a hybrid tribunal and the Public Interest Law and Policy Group, a global pro bono law firm providing free legal assistance to parties involved in peace negotiations, drafting post-conflict constitutions, 
and war crimes prosecution and transitional justice. Since its founding in 1995, PILPG has provided legal assistance to more than two dozen peace negotiations and more than two dozen post-conflict constitutions. They've also assisted every international and hybrid criminal tribunal, as well as helped create a number of domestic transitional justice mechanisms. And from them today, we draw our moderator, Dr. Paul Williams. He holds the Rebecca Grazier Professorship in Law and International Relations at American University, where he teaches in the School of International Service and at the Washington College of Law. Dr. Williams is a co-founder of PILPG, and as a world-renowned negotiation lawyer, Dr. Williams has assisted more than two dozen parties in major international peace negotiations and has advised numerous parties on the drafting and implementation of post-conflict constitutions. Dr. Williams has served as a senior associate with the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, as well as an attorney advisor for European and Canadian affairs at the United States Department of State Office of the Legal Advisor. He has published more than three dozen scholarly articles on international law and policy, and has authored six books on various topics concerning international law. His most recent book was published in 2021, entitled Lawyering Peace, which provides guidance to help negotiators resolve future conflicts by building better and more durable peace agreements. Dr. Williams is a member of the Council of Foreign Relations and has served as a counselor on the Executive Council of the American Society of International Law. In 2019, Dr. Williams was awarded the Cox International Law Center's Humanitarian Award for Advancing Global Justice. He received his Juris Doctorate from Stanford Law School and his PhD from the University of Cambridge. Dr. Williams, I shall turn it over to you. Great. Thank you, Kristen. Um, hello and welcome to everyone. In particular, welcome to our over 200 uh, registrants for today's conference and discussion on the path forward for a special tribunal for Ukraine. For today's expert roundtable, we have an amazing array of panelists consisting of Ukrainian and international legal experts who will present and discuss the many considerations the international community and Ukraine must confront surrounding accountability for the atrocity crimes committed by the Russian military in Ukraine. Our discussion stems from the release of a groundbreaking new white paper from Professor David Crane's Global Accountability Network. The paper is entitled Considerations for the Setting Up of the Special Tribunal for Ukraine on the Crime of Aggression. And we'll be posting a link to that shortly in the chat. The white paper reviews the creation, setup, and subsequent operations of the first hybrid international tribunal, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and takes those successful lessons learned to map out proven methodologies for the creation of a special tribunal for Ukraine. It will serve as the basis for our conversation today. Today's roundtable will be 90 minutes long. Our distinguished panelists include Ina Leniovia, the Executive Director of the Ukraine Bar Association, Ambassador Hans Corral, prior legal counsel of the United Nations, who helped create the UN's Special Court for Sierra Leone, Professor David Crane, the founding chief prosecutor of the Special Court for Sierra Leone, and Ambassador Dr. Anton Koryanovich, the ambassador at large in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine. Now, let me introduce our panelists. First off, we have Ina Liniovia, executive director of the Ukrainian Bar Association. 
Ina is a Ukrainian lawyer specializing in international law. In the past, she has worked for international technical assistance projects for USAID, the Council of Europe, and the European Union, supporting the reform of the justice sector and of the judiciary in Ukraine, as well as the development of the legal profession in Rwanda. Ina has also headed a division of the Ministry of Justice of Ukraine in charge of the coordination and execution of judgments of the European Court of Human Rights and reporting to the Committee of Ministers of the Council of Europe. Welcome, Ina. We are also excited today to have Ambassador Hans Karel, the former legal counsel of the United Nations from 1994 to 2004. While at the United Nations, he helped create the Special Court for Sierra Leone. From 1962 to 1972, Hans served in the Swedish judiciary. In 1972, he joined the Ministry of Justice, where he was appointed Chief Legal Advisor of the Ministry in 1981. He was Ambassador and Undersecretary for Legal and Consular Affairs in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs from 1984 to 1994. He was also a War Crimes Rapporteur in the former Yugoslavia from 1992 to 93. And during his time at the United Nations, he was involved in the establishment of the Yugoslav Tribunal, the Rwanda Tribunal, the Special Court for Sierra Leone, the Extraordinary Chambers for Cambodia, and the International Criminal Court. Since his retirement from public service in 2004, he has remained heavily engaged in many different activities in the legal field, including as a legal advisor, lecturer, and a member of many different boards. Welcome to the panel, Hans. We also have a warm welcome for Professor David Crane. David teaches at the Syracuse University College of Law, he was the founding chief prosecutor of the Special Court for Sierra Leone from 2002 to 2005. Among those he indicted was the president of Liberia, Charles Taylor, the first sitting African head of state to be held accountable. Prior to this position, David served over 30 years in the senior executive service of the United States government. David speaks around the world and publishes extensively on international humanitarian law, he has also founded the Global Accountability Network in 2017. Welcome to today's conversation, David. And we are exceedingly excited to welcome Ambassador Dr. Anton Korjanovich, a Ukrainian lawyer specializing in public international law, international humanitarian law, and international criminal law. Anton serves as ambassador at large in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine. Anton is also the agent of Ukraine before the International Court of Justice in the allegations of genocide case against Russia. He holds the position of associate professor in the International Law Department at the Institute of International Relations at the National University of Kyiv. Welcome everyone, and thank you for agreeing to participate in today's discussion. Now, let's set the scene for the audience. Hans, can you discuss why it is essential for the international community not to lose sight of what is happening in Ukraine and why accountability seems to be the topic on everyone's mind. Thank you. First of all, I would like to thank the Robert Jackson Center for the invitation to participate in this important panel and this important discussion. My answer to your question is that it is absolutely necessary for the international community not to lose sight of what is happening in Ukraine. Let us first look at the Charter of the United Nations. It was negotiated 
by a generation that had experienced two world wars. And this led to the establishment of the United Nations in 1945 in order to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, as it is said in the preamble of the Charter. There we also find, quote, to reaffirm faith in fundamental human rights, in the dignity and worth of the human person, in the equal rights of men and women, and of nations, large and small, unquote. We should respect this heritage. The UN has six principal organs. One of them is the Security Council. The Council has 15 members, among them the following five permanent members, China, France, the Russian Federation, the United Kingdom and the United States of America. In Article 24 of the Charter, the UN members confer on the Security Council primary responsibility for the maintenance of international peace and security. And they agree that in carrying out its duties under its responsibility, Security Council acts on their behalf. The attack by Russia on 24th February this year is a flagrant violation of the UN Charter. Specific reference should be made to the fundamental provision in Article 2, Paragraph 4 of the Charter, which reads, quote, all members shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state or in any other manner inconsistent with the purposes of the United Nations." Unquote. What we are now witnessing in Ukraine are flagrant violations of the UN Charter by a permanent member of the UN Security Council. The attack on Ukraine on 24th February this year is an obvious crime of aggression by Russia. Other violations of the laws of war have been committed. There are crimes against humanity, war crimes, and maybe also genocide. I would like to focus on four elements in an international law perspective. First element, extensive sanctions against Russia have been adopted by many states and organizations. I'm sure that you're all aware of this. Let us just hope that these sanctions will have effect. We should also note that the General Assembly on 7 April this year they expelled or suspended Russia from its membership of the United Nations Human Rights Council. The second element, the United Nations General Assembly has engaged itself in the issue in a very unusual procedure known as Uniting for Peace. The system was established by resolution of the General Assembly in 1950 and means that if the Security Council is prevented from intervening in a very serious situation due to the right of veto, the Security Council may, by a procedural resolution where the veto does not apply, request that the General Assembly convene in an emergency special session within 24 hours. On the 27th of February 2022, 
the Security Council adopted a resolution that the General Assembly should hold an emergency special session. The General Assembly acted immediately. The emergency session was held on the next day and on the 2nd of March 2022 the Assembly adopted a resolution entitled Aggression Against Ukraine. The resolution is against the invasion of Ukraine. In the resolution, the General Assembly, among other things, reaffirms its commitment to the sovereignty, independence, unity and territorial integrity of Ukraine within its internationally recognized borders extending to its territorial waters. It deplores in the strongest terms the aggression by the Russian Federation against Ukraine in violation of Article 2.4 of the Charter. It demands that the Russian Federation immediately cease its use of force against Ukraine and to refrain from any further unlawful threat or use of force against member state and also demands that the Russian Federation immediately, completely and unconditionally withdraw all of its military forces from the territory of Ukraine within its international recognized borders. The General Assembly also deplores the involvement of Belarus in this unlawful use of force against Ukraine and calls upon it to abide by its international obligations. In the vote, 141 states voted in favor of the resolution, five states against, and 35 abstained. The five countries that voted against the resolution were Russia, Belarus, Syria, North Korea, and Eritrea. The assembly resolutions are not legally binding, but they can reflect and influence world opinion. This is why I thought it was important to mention this as the second element. I now come to the third element, and that concerns the International Court of Justice that had issued a ruling. Ukraine, as we heard, has brought Russia before the International Court of Justice, another of the six principal organs of the UN, objecting to Russia's use of the term of genocide. According to the Genocide Convention, to which both Russia and Ukraine are parties, such a dispute must be resolved by the International Court of Justice. On 16th of March 2022, the ICJ made a preliminary decision which summarized in three points with the following wording, and now I quote, indicates the following provisional measures. One, by 13 votes to two, the Russian Federation shall immediately suspend the military operations that it commenced on the 24th of February 2022 in the territory of Ukraine. Two, by 13 votes to two, the Russian Federation shall ensure that any military or irregular armed units which may be directed or supported by it, as well as any organizations and persons which may be subject to its control or direction, take no steps in furtherance of the military operations referred to in point one above. And third, unanimously, both parties shall refrain from any action which may aggravate, 
extend the dispute before the court or make it more difficult to resolve. Unquote. The two judges who voted against points one and two were the Chinese and Russian judges. I now come to the fourth element, and now we come to your question about accountability. I would say the International Criminal Court has started preliminary investigations. The ICC is regulated by the Rome Statute of the ICC of 1998, which came into force on the 1st of July 2002. Russia and Ukraine are not parties to the Rome Statute. However, Ukraine has accepted the jurisdiction of the ICC in accordance with Article 12 of the Statute. The court may therefore try cases against individuals who have committed crimes against Ukraine. Now, the International Criminal Court has launched preliminary investigations into crimes against humanity, war crimes and genocide. I have seen on the court's website that they have a very developed program where victims can register and submit information to the court. There is also information for witnesses. Investigations are also in progress in individual countries, including my own country, Sweden. We can only imagine the extraordinary extensive material that will be collected by or submitted to competent authorities. Testimonies, certificates, objects, pictures, films, etc. There are also other steps taken, including for the establishment of an international special criminal court for the crime of aggression. David Crane will address this question. I also studied with great respect the draft law for a Ukrainian high war crimes court. I studied this uh, proposal with great respect and it's prepared by the public international law and policy group, of course. Now, the international courts can only address cases against a few perpetrators. Because of the magnitude of the crimes committed in Ukraine, there is no doubt need for international support of national courts in the country. So, to sum up in response to your question, what is happening in Ukraine is extremely serious and demonstrates that the international community has a responsibility to work with determination to establish the rule of law, both at a national and international level. I will, after my address now, post in the chat references to two documents addressing the need for reforming the UN Security Council and the need for educating politicians on the rule of law. The two documents are entitled the UN Security Council and the Rule of Law, and Rule of Law, a Guide for Politicians. Thank you all for your attention. Great. Thank you, Hans, for that very valuable introduction and overview of the activities of the international community. Let me now turn the microphone to Anton. Uh, and Anton, if you could tell us a little bit about the accountability efforts that are ongoing within Ukraine. Yeah, thank you very much, uh, Paul. Thank you very much to the old organizers of the event Good evening from Kiev. It's a pleasure uh, to be here today with you uh, among all these air raid sirens which we heard today in the morning, which were dedicated by uh, our enemies, by the Russians, to the day of Ukrainian statehood. 
which we for the first time celebrate today. And um, the aggressor decided that we need to start our morning with a raid uh, of air raid sirens. But nevertheless, Ukraine is really focused on and works hard on all the, I would say, fronts in order to uh, get the victory in this really purely aggressive war, which is, of course, a flagrant violation of uh, international law. And actually, Ukraine, uh, since 2014, since the very start of the Russian aggression, because we always say here in Ukraine and both with our international partners in conversations with them that this aggression started not on the 24th of February. This aggression started well, this year. This aggression started in the end of February 2014. And since that time, we often say that Ukraine uses lawfare in response to Russia's warfare. So while Russia uses warfare on a ba battlefield, we try to use and we use all the possible instruments and mechanisms to bring Russia as a state to international responsibility and to bring perpetrators of the war crimes and other crimes committed here in Ukraine by the uh, Russian citizens. So when we talk about the Russian responsibility as a state, so when we talk about international responsibility of a state, of course, is a key and principal body for us here is International Court of Justice, about which Ambassador Corel was talking right now. And we have two cases there, uh, one concerning the violations of two conventions on uh, elimination of all forms of racial discrimination and uh, on combating the financing of terrorism. And the second is just this uh, new case, which we uh, made an application to the ACJ on the 26th of February this year. So on the third day of a full-scale aggression, we filed an application concerning these allegations of genocide case. And it's a pleasure that just when we were preparing to participate in this webinar, the third state, New Zealand, made official declaration of intervention to the case. So now three states uh, made official declarations. We, of course, hope that more states will follow. Of course, we also have European Court of Human Rights, uh, which also is about responsibility of Russia as a state concerning the violations of European Convention of Human Rights. And also we use the instruments of uh, uh, arbitrations, in particular arbitrations under the United Conventions on the Law of Sea. We have two of these arbitrations which are administered by the PCA, by the Permanent Court of Arbitration, but which are arbitrations set up on the basis of UNCLOS, uh, and it relates to the two issues, uh, in particular the issue of warships in the Kerch Strait and rights of Ukraine as a, as a uh, sea country, sea state. Uh, but also, of course, the very important factor is the individual responsibility. And here we talk, of course, about international criminal law uh, and national criminal law. Uh, and here, of course, we do have two important elements. We do have national courts which do provide justice now in times of war, courts work, prosecutors work, national police does job in order to fix and to document all the possible uh, uh, violations. And of course, national courts will take the most of the cases. This is quite obvious. And of course, I mean, I myself am the big proponent of strengthening the national system in order for it to be capable of, of working with I mean, thousands of cases. This is really appalling and this is really unprecedented.
And of course, the second element of it is, is the ICC, International Criminal Court, uh, which Ukraine um, has not ratified their own statute yet. But nevertheless, uh, we are there. I mean, by uh, making two hour declarations of recognition of jurisdiction, in particular, the second one, which is made without the final date, we really have pretty much the same obligations as any any state which ratified their own statute. Uh, and now the uh, Office of the Prosecutor of the International Criminal Court does conduct investigation of the situation of Ukraine starting from the 21st of November 2013 without end date. We also have the JIT uh, joint investigative team to which Ukraine, Poland, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Slovakia, Eurojust and Office of the Prosecutor of the ICC for the first time in history are, are members too. So we have this platform to communicate, to exchange information. And uh, uh, we really hope that the ICC will be very effective in bringing justice in relation to three crimes, which fall under its jurisdiction uh, in relation to the situation in Ukraine. Uh, crime of genocide, crimes against humanity, and war crimes. So we do rely on ICC here, and we do hope that ICC will help us in fight with impunity. But of course, we are lacking the third element. The third element, which I do believe is important one, this is about the responsibility for the crime of aggression. We unfortunately cannot bring to responsibility for the crime of aggression at least Troika, at least three key figures of Russian political arena due to their functional and personal immunities. We also do not have now the International Court or Tribunal, which could adjudicate cases on the crime of aggression against Ukraine. The International Criminal Court cannot do that due to jurisdictional restrictions and will not be able to do that in future. That's quite obvious. So the question is whether we leave the crime of aggression against Ukraine unattended and whether we are okay with saying that let's not let's do nothing with it or we do realize that this is the biggest war in Europe since 1945, that this is the biggest aggression in Europe since 1945. And the legal answers to this aggression should be a relevant one. And I'm sure that bringing perpetrators of the crime of aggression against Ukraine to responsibility is very important, both legal and political goal. And for that, of course, the establishment of the special tribunal for this reason is, is really an important step forward. This tribunal will be, re will be ready to work only with the crime of aggression, only in relation to the political and military leaders, because, I mean, it is quite obvious it should deal with aggression on the basis of approach set forth in Article 8b of the Rome Statute as a leadership crime. So that, and uh, it's rather easy, as, as, as uh, Paul and Ambassador Corell were saying, the aggression is obvious. It will be rather easy, and it will not take a lot of time to uh, produce the, uh, all the evidence, to produce the um, procedural documents, and actually, I hope so, to, to uh, issue the uh, arrest warrants. So the question is, of course, how to do that? The question is, with whom to do that? And of course, obviously, there are two big models here. One model is about setting a tribunal on the basis of multilateral treaty. The second model is setting up a tribunal on the basis, with agree on the basis of agreement with international organization. 
either UN or a regional European one, say EU or Council of Europe. As of now, we do have quite good, I would say, political support of the idea of establishment of this tribunal. We have two resolutions of the Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe, resolution of the European Parliament, resolution of the Parliamentary Assembly of uh, NATO, resolution of the Parliamentary Assembly of OSCE, resolution of the SEMAS of the Republic of, of Lithuania, some resolutions of professional uh, organizations like New York State Bar Association and the Naczelna Rada Advokatska of Poland, uh, Poland, Poland Bar Council, and, and many others. Uh, so this is a good background and a good uh, front in order to push forward for the establishment of the tribunal. As I think a lot of our uh, participants saw in the Ukraine Accountability Conference in The Hague, which took place on the 14th of July, both the president of Ukraine, Volodymyr Zelensky, and the minister of foreign affairs of Ukraine, Dmitro Kuleba, were talking about the need to establish the special tribunal. So we do hope that our colleagues and international partners hear us and that we will move further quickly and effectively in order to reach the goal of uh, establishing of this tribunal. We are ready to move forward. We are ready to work in order to get the result done. And we are sure that there may be no alternative to setting of this special tribunal whenever we say that the crime of aggression against Ukraine should not be left unattended. And I think that uh, Ms. McMahon started our uh, webinar with citation from a brilliant citation from Robert Jackson's uh, opening remarks uh, at the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. And I think that I will finish my remarks with a classic one from the uh, judgment of the International Military Tribunal in Nuremberg in relation to what is a crime of aggression or the crimes against peace, how they were labeled that time. War is essentially an evil thing. Its consequences are not confined to the belligerent states alone, but affect the whole world. To initiate a war of aggression, therefore, is not only an international crime, it is a supreme international crime, differing only from other war crimes in that it contains with itself the accumulated evil of the whole. I think that one cannot say better than this phrasing, this wording, especially in relation to accumulated evil of the whole. If it was not crime of aggression against Ukraine, our people and my country would never face genocide, crimes against humanity, war crimes. All this happened because of the aggression of the Russian Federation, which is an act of state, but which is connected with a crime of aggression committed by the highest political and military leaders of the Russian Federation. So we will keep working hard with our international partners in order to establish a special tribunal and for bringing perpetrators of the crime of aggression against Ukraine to responsibility, I think. Great. Thank you, Anton, for that very helpful overview of the current activities of Ukraine uh, relating to accountability. Let me now turn to, to Ina as executive director of the Ukrainian Bar Association. Uh, what are the main developments that you and your colleagues are, are seeing or observing on the legal front lines in Ukraine? Thank you, Paul. Good morning, good afternoon, colleagues. Um, I first of all would like to thank the Jackson Center for the invitation to this event. It is an honor and a great pleasure to be here today among such 
outstanding Ukrainian and foreign experts. Ambassador Coral and Ambassador Kordanevich covered a lot of what I um, was uh, planning on saying. So I will um, focus on the reaction of the legal community because this is something that we uh, are trying to do and that is our focus. Uh, from the moment of the aggression, UBA made its priority uniting legal community and international organizations in what we call a unified uh, legal frontline. And I really like the expression that Ambassador Koronevich used, that we respond to Russian warfare by lawfare. And this is our mission as we view it. Since the beginning of the war, Russia didn't only attack Ukraine. Russia used notions and terms uh, from the international uh, public law to justify its actions. For example, they called the war of aggression as a measure of collective, collective self-defense. And although journalists and activists and other persons reported uh, about Russian crimes and what is being committed, we believe that it is up to lawyers to speak up and to rebut the arguments of the Russian Federation and to fight with them. That is why, uh, together with our good partners, International Bar Association, New York State Bar Association, bar councils and law societies from so many uh, countries across the globe, we try to consolidate this response of the Ukrainian and international legal communities and to create this, what we call a unified um, legal front line. As the war uh, progresses, we see greater unity among uh, both legal community, international organizations, the governments. Um, now, uh, the world does not shy away from terms genocide, war, war crimes, crimes against humanity, which in the beginning of the war wasn't the case. However, Unfortunately, we understand that now the greatest um, weapon that uh, Russia and President Putin have is uh, time. And the stronger actions are very, need very much needed and they are needed urgently. The international uh, legal community should come together and try to help governments and international organizations to solve any obstacles in creating tribunal and uh, other accountability mechanisms that are on the uh, table on the agenda of the world today. We are indeed very pleased to see that now lawyers provide um, assistance and provide analysis of the actions of the Russian Federation. We mentioned today the resolution of the New York State Bar Association, which has been adopted very recently on 19th of July, where um, New York State Bar Association openly urged the secretary the United Nations General Assembly, I'm sorry, to take action by authorizing the UN Secretary General to establish a hybrid international war crimes tribunal involving Ukraine, similar to those established to investigate and prosecute war crimes in Sierra Leone, Rwanda, and Cambodia. If I'm not mistaken, this is the first international legal association who publicly and very directly urged the United Nations to establish the tribunal and in particular tribunal dedicated to um, the crime of aggression. 
the war is far from over. And as I've mentioned, we don't have much time as Ukraine has uh, less time than Russia uh, does. That's why urgent measures are needed. And we believe that the time has come and we need to seize the momentum. This is very briefly about the developments. And of course, I would be very happy to answer um, any questions either now or in the end of our um, webinar. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Ina, for that very granular description of what uh, you and other Ukrainian lawyers are doing on those legal front lines, which are so important in this type of conversation. As Anton had mentioned, there's a lawfare dimension to this conflict as well. Uh, and the Ukrainians need to be fighting uh, on all fronts. So it's very impressive the work that you and your colleagues are doing. Uh, let me turn now to, to David. Um, you know, David, as we mentioned in the introduction, your Global Accountability Network, uh, its Ukrainian task force, has released a white paper proposing the establishment of an international tribunal for Ukraine, similar to the model uh, used in Sierra Leone. David, can you discuss the key differences between your proposed tribunal for Ukraine uh, and the special court for Sierra Leone, perhaps in terms of the kinds of crimes that would be investigated, the structure of the tribunal, lessons learned from your work uh, as the initial prosecutor for the Sierra Leone tribunal, and what jurisdictional questions might come into play with this tribunal? Well, thank you very much uh, for the opportunity to speak uh, this afternoon, uh, and it's uh, uh, my pleasure and honor to be uh, on the panel of such distinguished uh, friends and colleagues, uh, one of which Hans Karel and I have known each other uh, approaching three decades. So uh, again, we've done this before. I think it's really kind of important and I think it's the message is in the white paper. And it's, I think it's really for us to step back for a moment. Can we do this? Can we take on a sitting head of state for what he has done to a sovereign territory a member state of the United Nations? And the answer is yes, we can. Uh, and we're moving forward to doing that. And our colleagues at the ICC are uh, uh, taking important steps related to war crimes, crimes against humanity, and perhaps uh, genocide. But again, uh, and, and this was similar to what happened in West Africa. We had a horror story where we see the murder rate, maiming and mutilation of over 1.2 million human beings, which is the blood diamond story. Uh, I had the privilege uh, of being asked to help set up the world's first hybrid international war crimes tribunal with, as part of his statute, the authority to uh, investigate and indict a sitting head of state uh, should that uh, those facts be found that they have committed international crimes. And of course, the implication was uh, various sitting head of states. In fact, actually, in my investigations, I found uh, mo President Muammar Gaddafi of Libya, Blaise Campori of Burkina Faso, as well as President Charles Taylor. All three of them were in, uh, complicit in the uh, takedown of, uh, of Sierra Leone. I chose for political reasons only to indict uh, President Charles Taylor, the sitting president of uh, Liberia, for war crimes and crimes against humanity. And so I think this is where it would be some, some similarity. A limited court specifically set up to account for an international criminal act. So in Sierra Leone, that was war crimes and crimes against humanity with an eye towards looking at the complicity of a sitting head of state, President Charles Taylor. The present day, we have uh, the ability to set up a, a court in a similar model, a second hybrid international war crimes tribunal. And what does that mean is the international community and the Ukrainian 
uh, legal community and peoples will come together to work together to seek justice, just like we did in Sierra Leone. So we have a court potentially set up, a special tribunal for Ukraine on the crime of aggression. We have a sitting head of state who has committed international crimes. And in this situation, it would be the crime of aggression. So they're different crimes, but the actual practical and political mindset that we can bring to the table this summer is just that. We've done this before, but we also can and have the practical, legal, diplomatic, and political capacity to come together to set up a special tribunal for the crime of aggression. And so there's a lot of similarity. We already have a valid template statute that could be easily used and very important to, in fact, uh, ensuring justice is done for the people of Ukraine. And using that as a, a template, begin to create uh, this new tribunal. I really want to stress here something that Ina brought up, and that is time. You know, this is an historic moment. This is at a moment where it's very, very critical that the democracies come together and face down aggression. Simple as that. The world's community is watching. We have strong men sitting like crocodiles watching to see what we do about the crime of aggression and Putin. If we do nothing, then we now have precedent. And there are other strong men who would love to be able to then move in their own agendas to take care of this. So we have a political moment, an historic moment, and a moment where democracies can come together and show the world that internationally, and I think this is where uh, we should move the, uh, the, the special tribunal out of the European context, though it's appropriate, and put it at the international level because really the aggressive acts of the Russian Federation is an attack on all of us. It's attack on the system. It's attack on the paradigm set up almost 80 years ago after World War II. It is the type of aggression, the type of political act that the United Nations was set up to avoid. Because if we do nothing about the aggression related to Vladimir Putin and the Russian Federation, there's a logical question. Well, then why do we have the United Nations? So it's critical for all of us to just appreciate in the macro sense, really what's happening here. Now, Vladimir Putin knows this better than we know ourselves. Uh, I recently wrote a, an op-ed about this. It's called Time and Distraction are Vladimir Putin's ultimate weapon. He's going to grind this continuing forward. We're about to go into a winter season. He's going to see how that happens. He's not going to let go and play out and see where Europe is in relation to its intent to deal with the situation and aggression. And so also just to the distraction of the world, there is so much going on with COVID and inflation and monkeypox even. Uh, uh, the bottom line being is uh, the world is distracted. And I've seen this before. And, and, and my colleagues who have been in this business a long time, and Paul and Hans, the world moves on. I saw this in Syria. I've been involved in Syria since March of 2011, uh, a few weeks after the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the attacks on kids by the Syrian army in Dara. We've moved on from Syria. No one even thinks about Syria. What I want to 
insurers. You know, this time next year, I don't want us to be talking about something else other than Ukraine. So we have a political moment this summer, perhaps this fall, where we can and easily set up, and the white paper shows it can be done, uh, set up a special tribunal for Ukraine where the uh, Ukraine asks the United Nations General Assembly to give the Secretary General the authority to enter into a bilateral treaty between the United Nations and Ukraine, just like we did in West Africa. And we start the process of setting up a special tribunal. It can be focused, it can be specific, it can be efficient, and it can be on the ground and working uh, within weeks of, that, uh, of the agreement. So we need to do this now. It's the political moment is now. Uh, and I would urge all of the parties listening to this and also individuals who have or players is to sit down uh, and make this happen. Because the good news is uh, we've done this before and we can do it again. David, thank you for that very compelling argument for a special tribunal. Clearly, there are lessons to be learned, both in terms of how one sets up a tribunal, but more importantly, why one needs this type of accountability in order to stem the tide of aggression. Hans, let me turn to you now with a, a two-part question. First of all, can you walk uh, those of us in the audience through the question of why it might be necessary to create this additional tribunal when we have the International Criminal Court and it has jurisdiction? Uh, and then second, uh, what obstacles stand in the way of establishing a tribunal on the crime of aggression against Ukraine through typical channels? Thank you. <clears throat> yes, the reason, of course, is that the ICC does not have jurisdiction of the crime of aggression uh, in this case, and that is extremely critical issue. And I've taken part in discussions about setting up a special court that can try cases concerning the crime of aggression. And David gave a very, very important description of the thinking here. Uh, the question is then with method to use. And states may decide to adopt an international agreement establishing the court, but this is an extremely time-consuming method, uh, especially as such an agreement must be ratified by the parliaments of participating states, which can take several months, maybe even years. So my suggestion is precisely what David Crane said here, to use the same method as the UN used in Sierra Leone. And I got the uh, task from Kofi Annan when Sierra Leone turned to the Security Council asking for the court. Uh, they didn't want to set up yet another Rwanda or Yugoslav tribunal. They instead wanted to have an agreement between the UN and Sierra Leone. And I was asked to uh, uh, negotiate this agreement. And so I did. And it was a very, very good discussion here because the Sierra Leone really wanted to have a proper court with international judges in it. So I uh, negotiated this and I signed the agreement between the UN and Sierra Leone with their Minister of Justice Solomon Bereva on the 60th of January 2002 in Freetown. And uh, a request for such a court of course by Ukraine should not go to the Security Council because there it will be vetoed by Russia. But I got a similar task with respect to Cambodia. The Cambodia turned to the General Assembly and the General Assembly asked Kofi Annan to organize an agreement and it fell to me to negotiate agreement too. So 
In my view, the special court for Sierra Leone functioned very well. And of particular importance here is that the Liberian president, Charles Taylor, was brought to justice here, as David Crane said. And this showed that the conclusion is that a court had jurisdiction over a head of state, who in the case of the crime of aggression against Ukraine, a head of state is a suspect. So if Ukraine wishes to have uh, such a court, they should ask the General Assembly to provide an agreement with, uh, with between the UN and, and uh, Ukraine. And the agreement itself should be the same nature as the one I had the pleasure of negotiating with Sierra Leone, not the agreement with Cambodia because that was different. But the Sierra Leone should be the model here. And I think that this would be an opportunity that absolutely has to be taken. Because as uh, David Crane said, to leave the crime of aggression, just as it is, is simply not acceptable in a world that wanted to be under the rule of law. And the moment the court is established, uh, there are judges, but also in particular a prosecutor who can start investigations. The prosecutor can formulate an indictment and publish this indictment so the whole world can see exactly what the suspects are suspected of. So this is my advice and so forth. Thank you. Thank you, Hans. Let me now turn to Anton. And Anton, if you could address the question of how might a tribunal on the crime of aggression against Ukraine be designed to fit into the Ukrainian judicial system and complement ongoing efforts to hold senior Russian officials accountable for their crimes? Um, thank you, Paul, for your question. Well, of course, first of all, this is a, a true fact, and this is not a matter of discussion that we here in Ukraine consider that we need the special tribunal for the crime of aggression against Ukraine. And this is a lacking element, which is important for uh, this uh, overwhelming system of accountability. So, uh, of course, everybody understands the need for this court, for this tribunal to be established. Now, really, the, the fact is that uh, in ongoing consultations and communications with our international partners, we are trying to figure out uh, the, the, the way how it may be established and how it can be fit. So, uh, I mean, of course, uh, there are really different, different models and different uh, moments. Uh, we have this special court for Sierra Leone example when we talk about the court which is established uh, with the help of UN. We have the example of Kosovo specialist chambers when we talk about the court which is established on the basis with, of agreement with the EU. Uh, we have a separate story of separate international tribunals established um, uh, on the basis of uh, multilateral treaty. Uh, what is obvious, and the, the Minister of Foreign Affairs of Ukraine, Dmitry Koleba, was talking about that on this um, Ukraine Accountability Conference in The Hague on the 14th of July, is that the court shall be positioned as not making some alternative practices to the International Criminal Court but complementing the ICC in relation to the fact that it will deal only with the crime of aggression and only due to the fact because of the ICC cannot work on that issues. So, of course, if the ICC could have jurisdiction over the crime of aggression against Ukraine, I mean, we wouldn't have needed that the special tribunal. But since the ICC does not have this jurisdiction, we are here 
positioning the special tribunal establishment as complementing the International Criminal Court and using the approaches which are set forth in the Rome Statute of the ICC, namely the approach to the definition of the crime of aggression, which is set forth in the uh, Article 8b of the Rome Statute. Considering the real implementation of the court, of the tribunal to the court system of Ukraine, I think this is, a, this is quite a hard question because of the fact that in order to make something international in Ukrainian court system, uh, we need to probably, we need to make amendments to the constitution. And the fact is that now we have a martial law in action. During the martial law in action, constitution cannot be amended. So this is also something we need to bear in mind because there are specific provisions in constitution relating to the courts relating to the prosecutor's activity, which I mean, I, won't, I don't want to say may impede the process, no, but which make, may make it also quite a, bit, uh, quite a bit longer. But anyway, anyway, I'm sure that we will find the way out and we will find the most productive and effective way and model uh, for this special tribunal to be established. And what is important, we already hear the reactions on this idea from the part of aggressor state. And it is important for all of us to understand that uh, they understand everything. They understand how important the efforts may be and how serious these efforts can be for them when we talk about accountability. So by saying this, I would stop now with with, uh, the notion that For Ukraine, the special tribunal now is surely one of the priorities. And we are ready and we are moving forward in in, in considering uh, this issue quite, quite active. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Anton. Let me turn the microphone over to Ina and have you discuss what is the opinion of the Ukrainian legal community regarding the establishment of a tribunal on the crime of aggression against Ukraine? And how do we ensure that it operates in a complementary fashion to the ICC? Well, in brief, uh, Ukrainian legal community and the Ukrainian Bar Association are convinced that the tribunal must be established. And it is important for a few reasons. Um, First of all, and this also refers back to the complementarity uh, part of the question, the crime of aggression is a standalone crime in international law. It is different from war crimes, crimes against humanity, and genocide. Aggression is a crime that basically consists of planning, preparing, and launching an attack against another state, whatever these terms might might mean, might uh, entail. It has been mentioned today uh, already that none of the existing judicial institutions, neither International uh, Criminal Court, nor uh, European Court of Human Rights, nor International Court of Justice, have uh, jurisdiction over this uh, crime of aggression. In addition, um, I believe more than 11 uh, European states now launched investigations into Russians' uh, crimes in Ukraine. However, this mechanism cannot deal with the uh, crime of aggression either. That's why from the legal point of view, we have something something missing in the picture. And this is a proper accountability mechanism to address uh, the crime of aggression. 
Of course, we follow the lead of the Ukrainian government, and uh, we know that on 30, uh, 13th May, uh, Minister of Foreign Affairs, Admitro Kuleba, officially requested support from the international community for the creation of, a, of the special tribunal. Um, for the crime of aggression against Ukraine. And uh, as Ambassador Koronevich uh, mentioned today, Ukrainian government does view this measure as a priority and legal community fully agrees. Also now we uh, have an agreement and principal support from international organizations. Again, it has been mentioned today that the uh, uh, Parliamentary Assembly of the Council of Europe and EU Parliament adopted resolutions whereby they explicitly supported the creation of the ad hoc tribunal. That's why from the perspective of law of uh, law and international organizations, this is uh, there is a consent on this uh, matter. I just would like to add that the establishment of the tribunal will serve another important goal, and that is scaring away uh, Putin's supporters, including those persons who continue financing the war. Um, international, international accountability mechanisms might take time. We all know that um, it takes uh, time to uh, deliver justice at the international level. But establishing the tribunal already now will send a very clear and explicit signal to Russian leadership and people who support this war of aggression. The signal that justice will be served and anyone who aids in whatever way uh, Russian leadership will be brought to accountability. And I think this is very important because establishment of the tribunal thus will not only serve the purpose of accountability, but it might aid in stopping the war or stopping the war earlier or depriving the Russian government of its means. It's also important that uh, the uh, special tribunal might um, theoretically have jurisdiction to view any actions of the Russian government, any decisions, political decisions, financial decisions, even decisions that concern uh, culture and language, which led or which were designed many years before the aggression towards the purpose of the aggression. Thus, there is an, a chance to examine this whole uh, policy of the Russian state with regard to Ukraine. Uh, thus, we're convinced that establishing the tribunal now is a matter of time. And indeed, the main question which needs to be uh, solved, answered is uh, which, how do we design this uh, uh, tribunal? How do we approach this subject? However, to this end, we are ready to um, engage and use any existing uh, international mechanisms. And if none of the existing mechanisms are suitable, we must create new mechanisms to serve this purpose. Thus, a brief answer is yes. And we believe um, and hope that it will be done very soon. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Ina. Let me um, now turn it to David. As David, as you noted, accountability for atrocities committed in Ukraine should be, uh, and at the moment is, a diplomatic priority for many states, as we noticed with the recent Ukraine Accountability Conference in The Hague. What other types of accountability mechanisms are being discussed in these meetings? What other types of transitional justice mechanisms are being discussed? And should the international community think about synchronizing these different accountability efforts, 
is that even possible or is it even advisable? That's a great question, uh, Paul. Uh, you know, it's interesting having been around at the beginning as you have and Hans has uh, a long time ago, it's just fascinating to see how uh, the world for a while there over the past five years has kind of stepped away from international accountability. Uh, and now all of a sudden, now that we have this, the aggression, they're all of a sudden looking around going, well, what do we have? And of course we do have the International Criminal Court, an important aspect of this. Uh, and we do have regional capacity to do the same thing. And you know, it's very apparent uh, uh, that Europe has united and stepped forward in many, many ways to deal with this and obviously the other practical, political, and of course, the military challenges that go along with this. A cautionary point is we can be over-enthusiastic and uh, duplicate creating non-coordinated efforts that spends a lot of time waste, wasted. We don't have time. You know, my focus, I think we should have as the world sits together, as Europe sits together, particularly, is that we should look at the realistic models by which we can deal with this situation efficiently, effectively, and appropriately. We have domestic Ukrainian law and the prosecutor general. They should be supported. We have the International Criminal Court. It, this type of act is what the International Criminal Court was designed to do. And so they are working in their lane, war crimes, crimes against humanity and possibly genocide. The world should support the International Criminal Court appropriately and effectively as they do their preliminary investigation. And then we step back and go, okay, we do have aggression. How best to, in fact, efficiently and quickly deal with that. In my mind, that is at the international level, at the United Nations level, because of the points that I've made earlier, these are attacks on all United Nations. This is not just an attack on Ukraine, but that just the whole concept of international peace and security. And so my thinking is, is even though certainly over time, and in Europe moves a little bit slower than than is necessary at times, but this isn't a European problem. This is an international problem. And so what organization, what international organization was set up and designed to do this? And of course the answer is the United Nations. And so this is the appropriate model so that at the end of the day, we should have three efforts. Of course, we certainly can have uh, member states doing their own domestic investigations as they deem appropriate and under their jurisdiction. But the bottom line is our three focuses should be supporting the prosecutor general of Ukraine, supporting the International Criminal Court, and supporting the United Nations and setting up a special tribunal, which can be done quickly because we've done this before. And then we have three coordinated efforts uh, using the standard definition under the Rome Statute of Aggression, special tribunal, International Criminal Court, Prosecutor General of Ukraine, working side by side, uh, collaborating, sharing evidence, doing the things they have to do. But then this is where the world then could shift, focus its efforts, its money, its time to seek justice for the people of Ukraine. Thank you, David. You know, we touched on this a little bit, or you touched on this a little bit earlier in your, in your answer, but I wanted to come back to the question and give you more space to talk about how might the potential indictment of President Putin or other key actors 
facilitate the overall Ukrainian strategy for a durable peace in Ukraine? It's a very good question. Thank you for it. We all, and I believe that bringing President Putin and um, his uh, closest, highest uh, political and military leadership of the Russian Federation is a cornerstone of durable peace, and not only in Ukraine or the region, but the whole world. And I think this is not an exaggeration. If President Putin, the mastermind of uh, this great war, the greatest war in Europe, probably after Second World War, goes unpunished, this will send a very wrong signal to politicians of many generations. And this is something that we fear. That's why it's crucially important that he's brought to responsibility. Also prosecuting top political and military leadership of the Russian Federation is important because how can how can we uh, let them go unpunished when soldiers and military uh, personnel face punishment, whereas their president who planned and ordered this war uh, continues being free? No political, we, we are convinced that no political or diplomatic considerations, no matter how important, can justify letting President Putin continuing being unpunished. The, no one is above the law, no one is beyond the law. Uh, the moment a person commits a crime, uh, regardless of uh, the person's position, the moment of liability has to come. In the case of Ukraine, the proper answer is a clear uh, and direct statement from governments, from international organizations and nations that there will be a tribunal and that there will be trial and no one is exempt from it. And the UN, the uh, guarantor of peace, must finally uphold its responsibility to seize acts of aggression and other violations of peace. We saw uh, similar events happening in, not to the, the same extent, of course, but we saw similar events happening in Georgia, in other countries. Uh, this scenario is being repeated again and again and again, and there's no reason to believe that after Ukraine, Russia will stop its aggressive policy with regard to other countries. Thus, it is crucial to bring to liability high military and political leadership and to this end, we must establish a tribunal and we must send a clear message to, to aggressors, to aggressor countries and aggressor politicians. And this is our primary task as lawyers. This is how we view it. Thank you. Great. Thank you, Ina, for that compelling uh, answer to the to the question and making the case literally for the, the deterrence impact of indicting Putin and other key leaders. Uh, David, let me turn to you and ask a similar question, but in the context of the United States, the European and the global community at large, their strategic approach to Ukraine, how might an indictment of, of Putin and those of his inner circle play to the strategic interest or against the strategic interest? Well, thank you for the question. And uh, really, uh, all nations, uh, particularly uh, uh, nations such as the United States and, and particularly the rest of the permanent members of the Security Council, uh, whatever that means anymore. But the point is, is that we shouldn't look at it as a way of how we can advance national interests by doing this. There are practical and political implications of this, of course. Uh, if International Criminal Court indicts Vladimir Putin for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and uh, 
potentially genocide. Uh, and the special tribunal indicts Vladimir Putin for the crime of aggression. He has no more legitimacy in the world. Uh, he is a pariah. He may still have, quote, political power in, in, in Russia. But the implications is, and actually the implications mm -hmm. are now, to be honest with you, is that uh, the Russian Federation as a viable member state of both the United Nations and Security Council is badly damaged or if, if not just completely over. They are no longer worthy of the respect of the world related to uh, their ability to be a, a negative in, in the world as opposed to a positive and assertive and friendly nation and a member of the United Nations, which, which was set up. So there are grave, amazing political implications to what we have here. And so that if, if we hold tight to the rule of law in whatever way we decide to do that and look Vladimir Putin in the eye, politically all nations are benefited by this because then they are assured that the world community, the United Nations, uh, is the viable way by which we move into the 21st century. Uh, if we choose not to do that, that's a terrible thought. And so, uh, you know, I don't look at this from a nationalistic point of view. I think the world community should look at this collectively. I think they've done that with two UN General Assembly resolutions, condemning invasion, condemning the, uh, the uh, inhumane acts. And now logically, the third step by the General Assembly is to create a special tribunal for Ukraine uh, to hold accountable for those just in support of those two other political resolutions. And so it's logical, it's legal, and it's appropriate. But, you know, we, we really shouldn't, we should be very careful looking at this from a, uh, a local or regional perspective, but look at it as a, as, as a family of nations that have been uh, attacked together. Uh, and that focus was the Ukraine, but we've all been attacked. Uh, and if we do nothing about that attack, then uh, our, the, the United Nations in and of itself uh, is thoroughly weakened. Great. Thank you, David. Anton, let me turn to you for the last question before I turn the mic over to Kristen for any Q&A. While the international community builds the political momentum necessary to make such a tribunal a reality, is there anything that can happen in the meantime to contribute to the path of accountability? Well, thank you for your question, uh, Paul. Well, actually, of course, this decision concerning the establishment of the special tribunal is a key one, as all the other mechanisms we do have. I mean, we still lack another mechanism, but which is not about uh, purely accountability. Yes, we do not have the compensation mechanism, compensation mechanism for the damage caused by the aggression of the Russian Federation. It is also lacking. Ukraine is also working on that, but it's a kind of a different story, but it is also important. So, I mean, we have national courts, we have the ICC. So establishing of the special tribunal is, of course, a very much, uh, we are very much in favor of that. Of course, we are not, um, I mean, kind of reflecting to what dear colleagues say, we are not, we are considering going to the UN General Assembly. The only question we have is whether, uh, what will be the position of P3, what will be the position of the states from different regions, and uh, whether UN is ready to have a tribunal against a permanent member of Security Council. Because nobody wants a resolution for 20 votes. And it's quite obvious. 
but I mean, we are we are working on that. We are we are considering that, and uh, this is really important. I think what can be made in meantime is something concerning the investigation. I mean, investigation which is conducted by Ukrainian investigators and prosecutors, which will then be a basis for the tribunal to work on. And we kind of work now internally with our prosecutors for them to, to, to work on this track and to have this investigation in particular in relation to the highest political leaders uh, and military commanders of the Russian Federation so that this investigation can be a foundation or just be used by, by the tribunal and its um, office of the prosecutor uh, in the future. I thank you. Let me now turn to Kristen for one or two select questions from the Q&A. We have about eight minutes left. Thank you, Paul. And we have some questions that tend to fall into similar categories. So let me start there. I'm going to address this first one probably to Hans or David, because the question really is, how does this differ from what was set up for Sierra Leone? Are there particular differences here that may make uh, setting up something similar to what was done for Sierra Leone a challenge? If I may answer that question from a UN perspective, is that Sierra Leone turned to the Security Council asking for a court. This Ukraine cannot do here because Russia will veto that. This is why I suggested that we use the same method as we used in Cambodia, where the Cambodia turned to the General Assembly and the General Assembly asked Kofi Annan to have uh, an agreement negotiated. So this is the method one should use here, that Ukraine should turn to the General Assembly, but we should have the Sierra Leone agreement as a model because that functioned very well. Thank you. Thank you. Just Hans. the dovetail on, uh, on Hans's important point. You know, we have a, just a political, different political dynamic here. You know, when, uh, when Hans and I were setting up the uh, UN Special Court for the Sierra Leone, uh, we, uh, we were going after a sitting permanent member of the Security Council who has nuclear weapons. Should we back away from someone who has nuclear weapons and give them a pass because they have nuclear weapons? The answer is absolutely not. But the political circumstances are different, but they shouldn't dissuade us uh, from moving forward uh, uh, on this path. But, uh, but that is a, a, a critical concern. And Anton had kind of alluded to that as well. Uh, we, have, uh, we have a 400 pound gorilla that we've uh, now have in, uh, in the room and uh, uh, it's a different political uh, approach to it. But the bottom line is we should not give nations who have nuclear weapons capability a pass on atrocity accountability. And we should not do that with the Russian Federation. There is another question that, uh, and David, you had set this up saying that this is a inaction here would be a precedent that we don't want to set for going forward. But there was a question about how in the past there have been aggressions largely in Africa or the global south by, by, by power five countries. And so are we already in a little bit of a tricky situation with this advancement here versus how we may have reacted in the past? Well, very quickly, uh, we shouldn't look at the past to give us an excuse not to do something in the present. Uh, yes, there have been many failures. The Cold War was one of the bloodier wars of the 20th century. In my research, over 90 million human beings perished during the Cold War. There were all kinds of, of looking the other way kind of approaches to atrocity accountability. Uh, and it's not that we can't 
turn our backs to it. We have to acknowledge it. Uh, aggression has happened, even though it wasn't uh, legally a, a, a crime at the time, but we've had aggressive acts throughout this terrible period of the Cold War. Uh, but we, again, we can't use the excuse of, well, they have nuclear weapons or we've done this. It's, it's happened in the past. And so therefore we, uh, we shouldn't do anything in the present. I would caution very much that we don't use that past, but take the present, use what we have and move forward. If I may add also that this really points to the need for reforming the Security Council of the United Nations. And I have been very much involved in discussing this in the past, uh, based on my experiences from watching the way in which the Council acts. And I mean, it's really appalling that permanent members of the Security Council violate the very charter they are set to supervise. And therefore, the need for looking at the use of the veto is very important. And there are books written about this lately here uh, that uh, actually means that we could ask the General Assembly to ask a legal opinion from the International Court of Justice whether the use of the veto is legal in situation where it would violate use Kogan's or treaty obligations that the veto-using permanent member is bound by. And I think this discussion is very important and that should continue. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Ina and Anton, you had both mentioned at uh, times uh, some of the challenges with regard to recovering um, the aggressor's assets and courts or, or getting towards, towards those. And we have a question about whether there is advice uh, that can be provided to, to maintain or to increase the capacity of the national courts in Ukraine. Uh, is that something international courts could also help with? Or is this something that, um, are there successful cases of international courts helping to recover funds or assets that might be instructional here? I could try maybe. And then if Ambassador Koronevich would like to um, correct or add something from the government point of view, Ukrainian Bar Association is looking into compensation mechanisms as well. And from the early days of the war, we humbly tried to uh, develop some, some advice, some recommendations that might be helpful uh, for the government. What we did, we looked at various international compensation mechanisms that, that could be used by Ukraine. One of them, of course, is the UN Compensation Commission. And based on this, it's a very uh, complex, comprehensive mechanism that includes many, many layers, many pieces of a puzzle to it. We drafted a mechanism that could, could work for Ukraine based on the example of the commission. Um, because basically what we need, we need different approaches to assessing damages uh, inflicted in various sectors, collecting information from individual persons or uh, legal persons, sometimes foreign individual legal persons, processing this information and uh, finding money to, to reimburse for damage. And unfortunately, I guess I wish this was something that Ukrainian courts could cope with, but in this case, we need, again, we need assistance of um, in the international community. Uh, one thing that could be done by foreign governments, for example, is uh, to conduct an audit of all Russian property, uh, at least property belonging to Russian state and Russian legal entities. 
that belong to the state so that there's information and understanding on how much of a value is in the disposal of these governments. Because uh, And later, as a second step, to uh, drop design mechanisms of how this property could be compensated and used towards a reimbursement of uh, damages. Uh, we addressed more than 30 countries uh, with uh, a suggestion to conduct such an audit because uh, this the, the day will come when this, this information will be needed. And this mechanism, this process is not less, not more simple than accountability mechanism. Maybe it's more uh, complicated. That's why it will take a lot of time and a lot of bright minds to work on it. But um, in brief, I guess this is a very long way to answer your question. And in brief, um, it would be very useful to conduct audit and to come up with a mechanism of how this audit could be confiscated and used towards reimbursement. Thank you, Ina. I, I will maybe add to what Ms. Lignola was talking about. Actually, this is what I, I, I briefly mentioned, that we lack two mechanisms. The first mechanism is the Tribunal for the Crime of Aggression, which we're discussing here. And the second mechanism is compensation mechanism. Because uh, legally, it's rather easy to freeze the assets. Freezing the assets is a rather easy legal tool. But the question is how to make them use for the purposes of rebuilding and recovery of Ukraine, especially talking about the uh, for, uh, sovereign immunities of Russian, um, uh, of Russian property and assets. So, of course, um, I mean, UN Commission, uh, Compensation Commission, when we talk about uh, Iraq, Kuwait, it is a brilliant example. And I think that Ukraine compensation mechanism should be built around that example. But of course, we have, again, a very important novels and very important differences. Yes, we do not have a resolution of the Security Council. We will not have it. And we do not have the consent of another state to enter into agreement, for instance, for it to look like Iran-US claims tribunal. So we need to invent something which will work without consent of another state and without UN Security Council resolution. That is possible. Ministry of Justice of Ukraine works on this issue. Just now they are, I think, uh, moving around the world, uh, talking to different governments on that endeavor. So I really hope that, that they will move forward with this issue also. Thank you very much, Anton. Paul, I think I will turn it back over to you in the interest of time to close us out. Great. Thanks, Kristen. Well, that's all that we have time for today. Uh, thank you for joining our amazing panelists uh, and the Robert H. Jackson Center for this timely discussion. We look forward to seeing you at the next roundtable. Thank you. You have been listening to Liberty Under Law, the podcast of the Robert H. Jackson Center. Our podcast is edited by Connor Keenan. Original theme music for Liberty Under Law by Bryson Barnes. I'm Kristen McMahon, president of the Robert H. Jackson Center and your host. Content for this episode was drawn from a program hosted by the Jackson Center, whose mission is to advance public awareness and appreciation of the principles of justice and the rule of law as embodied in the achievements and legacy of Robert H. Jackson. United States Supreme Court Justice and Chief United States Prosecutor for the International Military Tribunal at Nuremberg. We envision a world where the universal principles of equality, fairness, and justice prevail. 
as a nonprofit organization, the Jackson Center's mission is made possible in great part through philanthropic gifts. To learn more about the Jackson Center, our programming, and how you can support our mission, please visit www.roberthjackson.org. You can connect with us and ask questions of our guests through our website. We're also on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok, and wherever you get your podcasts. And if you like what you heard, remember to subscribe and share with your friends.